The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Pray with me. Father, there is one thing that beats in the center of a saint's heart that we would be able to dwell in your presence, to dwell in your temple, to gaze upon your beauty, to see you, to enjoy you, to meditate there, to inquire of you all the days of our lives. Lord, that gets drowned out sometimes by all the many things, all the many pressures of life. (coughs) But it's there in the center. And I pray, Lord, that you would surface it in us now and that you would show us something wonderful about how you satisfy that desire. About how you have made possible what the psalmist hopes for and prays for, that all the days of our lives we can dwell in your temple. We can be in your presence and gaze upon your beauty and talk to you there and think about your things, to enjoy your being. Lord, you have made that possible, and we give you thanks for that, and I pray now that you would show us something about that today. That you would satisfy our hearts, stir our minds. Lord, be honored here. Make the word clear. Focus our attention. Focus my attention. Bless your people with your presence, I pray, Lord. For Christ's glory, for our good. Amen. (coughs) As we've been moving through the book of Acts, we've paused in Acts chapter 6 for several weeks now to look at three different ministries that arose in the early church. We looked at the ministry of the Word, the ministry of prayer, and then last week, as was already said, we looked at the ministry of deacons ministry of servants, those who were set aside in particular to address physical, tangible needs in the church so as to further the ministry of the Word and to assure the adequate stewarding of God's resources for the blessing of God's people. That's what we looked at last week, noting here in Acts chapter 6, the beginning, the, the seed of what would become later an official office of deacon. That's where we were last week. And then we saw... Moving on in chapter 6, that the seven who were set aside and called to be these first early servants, Luke, our writer, focuses our attention in on one of them, Stephen. And he shows us some more of who Stephen is and what he does. It's the last half of chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. This Stephen, though he was an early deacon, knew also the great importance for all Christians to be witnesses to Christ, and he regularly engaged in that preaching and teaching and and discussing in a synagogue. And he was very effective at that. 
filled with wisdom and, and power and the spirit and full of grace, so effective that his opponents were unable to defeat him in argument, and so they resorted to some other means, tried to officially suppress him by having him arrested. Verse 11 and following, they arrested him and hauled him before the Sanhedrin. That is, that's the 70-member the ruling council of Israel. It had the leading Pharisees and the leading Sadducees, the high priest and his family. We've met the Sanhedrin before. They, they haul Stephen in before the Sanhedrin, and they make an accusation against him. What are the charges? Blasphemy against Moses, against God. Specifically, this man's against Moses and against God because he says that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and change the law. It's a pretty serious charge. That's what they level against him. So he stands there before the 70 men, and verse 15, the end of chapter 6, pointedly tells us that as he stood in front of them, his face shone like an angel. That does not mean that he had a, a chubby little cherub face, looked like a baby. It's connecting us to Moses. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone such that people couldn't even look at him. It's connecting us back to Moses and saying, just like Moses was, here now stands Stephen being charged with being against Moses. There's a little sign here. He kind of looks like Moses as he stands to give his defense. That should have been a sign to them, and it is a sign to us. All of chapter 7, then, is his response to this charge. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. It's a very long section. I'm going to read it all, but I'm not going to read it all at once because it is so long. It needs to go together, but I'm going to break it up into separate sections as it, the story has uh, some natural breaks in it. So I'm going to read the sections and then discuss some of the most pertinent points from those sections. And then at the end, I'll bring out two overarching points. So I'm going to read and then comment, read and comment back and forth, and we're going to work through the whole chapter. I can look at everything, just the things that are most important for us to understand. So let me begin by reading Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 8 first. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The high priest hears the charges and says to Stephen, Is that true? And Stephen begins his defense. He replies in something that sounds perhaps to us rather ordinary. He's just starting to recount the history of Israel, is he not? 
But how he begins is a loaded idea here. He begins by talking about how the God of glory appeared in Mesopotamia. And that's important. Because the God of glory, that little phrase there, God's glory, the glory of God, where does the Jew associate that? The Sanhedrin that he's talking to. They connect the glory of God to the temple. The temple is called the place where God's glory dwells, the place where he put his name. And if you look at the inner sanctuary, the the innermost part of the temple, that's where the glory in particular dwells. You've got the ark there with the angels arching up over it, and God's glory dwells right there. And only one person, at one point in the year, the high priest, the guy who's asking him the question, only one person at one point in the year with the right sacrifice can go in and be in the presence of the glory of God. He knows that, they all know that, and he begins by saying, Of course, we realize, don't we, that this very same God appeared in pagan Mesopotamia to Abraham before he was a Jew, before he was even saved. We agree, right? Moses wrote that, didn't he? It's a very simple beginning, but it's loaded. We're all on the same page, right? That you're accusing me of being against Moses and being against the temple, the place where God dwells. Well, just for starters, we agree, don't we, that Moses wrote that the God of glory appeared in a pagan land to a pagan man, right? Okay, let's move on from there. And he continues to recount. And God said, leave this land and go to the place that I'll show you. So Abraham left and stopped over in Haran. And then God moved him on from there, moved him on to Canaan but didn't give him any of it. But he did give him a promise of a land and a people, though he didn't have any people. And he gave him a promise, and he gave him a covenant of circumcision. He foretold the future to him, said he was going to call him back to this place. God called Abraham. God moved Abraham to Canaan. God gave him a promise. God gave him a covenant that he would give him a land and a people. God, 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 God. God is active here in Mesopotamia and in Canaan with a man who initially wasn't even a worshiper of God. He begins rather simply, but he's driving home from the earliest stages this point. God is active everywhere in all kinds of crazy circumstances. And that's how he became the father of Isaac and the father of Jacob and the father of our patriarchs, which, of course, everybody knows. And then he continues, verses 9 to 19. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his father and all his kindred. 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver for the sons of Hamer in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they could not be kept alive. The second section begins with another matter-of-fact statement, which is also loaded. How is it, Stephen asks, how did Joseph and all the people get into Egypt? How did that happen? That all started when Joseph was rejected and betrayed by our jealous fathers. Our fathers, he repeats it several times in there, our fathers sold one of their own to Egypt. He repeats Egypt many times in here. Everybody knows this is going on in Egypt, but he says Egypt and Egypt and Egypt and Egypt over and over again, kind of driving home a point here. Our fathers took a righteous one of their own, rejected him out of jealousy, and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him in Egypt. And God raised him up, gave him wisdom and power, moved Pharaoh to put him at the right hand of the throne to reign over the whole of the land. Does this sound at all familiar? One of Israel's own rejected by Israel, but God with him raising him up. Such that when affliction strikes Israel, where do they have to go? They have to go to this one and hope in his mercy and wisdom and power to deliver them from their affliction. Does this sound at all familiar? He's telling Israel's ordinary history, telling it in a way that's going to connect to something a little further down the road. There's one that we betrayed. Our fathers rejected him. And God was with him. What's Stephen's drift here? You're against Moses. And he's saying, look, all I'm saying is that Moses is telling us something. Moses is setting up a pattern. God works in foreign lands. God takes up one rejected by Israel and makes him the deliverer. That's what Moses is saying. Are we not agreed so far? And then he explains how the enslavement came about, and then he comes to Moses being born. He comes to the third section here, and this section's longer because it deals with Moses, and that's the particular accusation made against him. You're against Moses and against what Moses taught. So he's going to work on this a little bit and say, am I against Moses? Another way you might say it is, am I against Moses or some other group? Let's see. Acts 7, verses 20 to 44. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you, what are you, why are you doing wrong to each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Back in Egypt, back at the beginning of this section now. Stephen says that Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight, meaning he's approved by God. God looks at him and says, yes. I'm with Moses. I'm for Moses. And Moses grew up and he was, became 40 years of age and it came into his heart. The way Stephen tells that, it's as if something outside of him moved into him that moved him to go to his brothers, to go to Israel. See if he could help out. See if he could deliver them. And he defended one of them and struck down an Egyptian. Again, everybody knows that. But notice how that went. You notice carefully verses 25 to 27. Moses did this supposing 
that his brothers would understand that God was giving salvation to Israel at his hand. Supposing that God has moved now to deliver Israel through me and they're going to get that, but they misunderstood. They didn't understand. And instead they thrust him aside and reject him. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Stephen's going to come back to that as we saw. So they reject Moses and he flees to pagan Midian. And there in the desert, an angel appears to him in a burning bush. Again, a story that we all know. Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing, here in this desert of Midian, the place where you are standing is holy ground. What's the name of the temple? Saw it up in chapter 6, verse 13. The holy place. What's the inner sanctum of the temple called? The most holy place. The holy of holies. And here, in the desert in Midian is holy ground. Why? Because the God of glory is there. In Midian, at Sinai, just like He was in Mesopotamia, just like He was in Egypt, where God is, is holy ground. Stephen's driving that point home. God then says to Moses there, You are my sent one. That should sound familiar. You are my sent one, sent to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel. But this one who was rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This one God has raised up, look at the words there, as ruler and redeemer. Stephen's deliberately blurring some lines here. Ruler, king, leader, lord, redeemer, deliverer, savior. This one rejected and cast aside by Israel, God has raised him up as Lord and Savior, if you will. Ruler and Redeemer. And he brought them out of Egypt, attested by marvelous signs and wonders. And then he said, God's going to raise up one greater than me even. God's going to raise up another prophet like me, but greater than me from amongst the people. That's what Moses is saying. Stephen's telling the story in a way that blurs the lines between Moses and someone else. He led them out, attested by signs, the same one who was rejected. This is the one, Moses, who was with the congregation in the wilderness. You know what the literal word there is? Church. Stephen says Moses was the leader of the church in the wilderness. Describing the people of God had a leader, Moses. The people of God have another leader just like Moses, but better than him. Oh, he's driving stuff together. And if you're in the Sanhedrin and you're awake, you're catching an earful right now. And their, their fury is certainly rising. They can't miss the drift here. There was one raised up, Moses. We rejected him. God approved of him. God tested him, attested to him by miracles, brought us out here, received the law from God, gave it to us as, does Stephen approve of the law? As living oracles? Yes, he does. But what happened? The people said no. And they rejected the law and turned away from God back to Egypt. And so God said, I send you away into exile. 
Stephen, you're against Moses, God, his place, and his word. And Stephen argues, well, somebody is. Somebody's against God, Moses, Moses' word from God, and is separated then from God's place, cast out in exile. Not me. Somebody is, but not me. Continues on. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses, directing him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, the first mention of the temple actually, temple proper. And then immediately, he undercuts it. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all this stuff? You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. That's heavy. When people rejected Moses and the law, they turned to idolatry and God turned them out. Sent them away to Babylon. They offered sacrifice to God, but actually it was to all kinds of other gods. They built him a house. He doesn't actually live in houses. He lives everywhere. In Mesopotamia, Canaan, Egypt, Midian. He'd actually prefer to be in a tent that moves around with the people wherever they go. But they tried to confine him to a house as they turned away from the law. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, using the very words of Moses and the prophets. You stand against God always, against God's lawgiver and deliverer and redeemer Moses, against God's prophets. You killed them. And now you have stepped even beyond your fathers in that you have killed the one that Moses and the prophets foretold. Who's the law setting up? Who's the law pointing to but the Messiah? And you killed him. That didn't go over very well. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
That's the text, obviously very lengthy. He's telling the whole story of Israel with an emphasis on the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he's telling it with a point, with an angle. It's responding to, his, to the accusations made against him. And that's going to lead me to make two general observations connected to the two accusations, and then I'll try to tie it together in a simple statement at the end. First observation related to the first accusation. Charge leveled against him. This man speaks against the temple. He says that Jesus is somehow going to destroy this place where God dwells. His response is the first point. In Christ... God is available to His people everywhere in the world. In Christ, God is available to His people everywhere. He is everywhere. He works everywhere. He can and should be worshipped everywhere. He calls out people from everywhere. The whole of the globe is God's domain. Heaven is my throne, He says. The earth is my footstool. Did not my hand make all of this? Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the seas and all that dwell therein. Psalm 139. Where shall I go to flee from your spirit? How can I get away from you? If I go up to heaven, there you are. If I go down to the depths of Sheol, there you are. He inhabits every bit of it. Everywhere. He makes a people for himself from everywhere. He meets his people everywhere. In glory he appeared to Abraham and claimed him in Mesopotamia and then in Canaan. Joseph in Egypt. Moses in Egypt and then in Midian. He is no little tribal deity contained in the borders of the people who worship him. The whole ancient world, and even today the world, is filled with little gods that a little geography right here worships them. But he doesn't have power beyond the borders of his country. That was the thinking. Over here is another little God with his little people that worship him. You try to expand the borders so you can expand the reign of your God. You build some temples out here to claim that land. God says, baloney, I'm over the whole thing. I move way over here to Babylon, Mesopotamia, way over here to Egypt, everywhere. The whole of the earth is mine. That's the emphasis of this speech in Acts 7. Something that could be a little familiar to us. Step back for a second, though, and see why this is important at this point in the book of Acts. You realize something interesting is going on here. This is a really long speech. And Luke records the whole thing. Peter preaches four times, and you get little snippets. Ten-second sound bites. But here you get 60 verses. Why? Consider where it falls in Acts. So far, everything that we've seen is in stage 1 of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember Acts 1, 8? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Three stages there. So far, everything has been in stage 1. All of this is in Jerusalem. Next week, we move to stage two, Judea, Samaria. And we meet the Samaritans. The church meets the Samaritans, begins to witness to them. So far, we've been exclusively over here with Jews embracing the Jewish Messiah, 
still going to worship and to pray and to meet for teaching in the temple. We see that repeatedly. They're still very temple-oriented here. That's what they know. This is like the, the culmination of their religion. But when we move over next week into Samaria, a big question arises. What about the Samaritans? Because they don't come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. They don't believe in it. They've got their own temple somewhere else. For them to become worshipers of Messiah, for them to become Jesus worshipers, Christians, if you will, do they have to convert to temple worship? Jerusalem temple worship? Do the Samaritans have to go up to the temple to be covered by the sacrifices to have their sins forgiven? Do they have to go to temple to meet with God? To come into fellowship with Him? Is that where God dwells in the temple? And what about Greeks and Romans and Americans? Do we have to go to the temple to meet with God and be covered by the sacrifice? And Stephen's answer is, Yes. Were you expecting me to say no? <laughs> Stephen's answer is absolutely. You must approach God in the temple. But the temple is not in Jerusalem. The temple is not in Jerusalem, it's everywhere. How is that? Remember John chapter 2? And this is clearly what Stephen was teaching because remember the charge against him? You can look back up there at the, top of, at the end of chapter 6. He says that Jesus is going to destroy this place. Where does that come from? John 2. Where Jesus says, he cleans out the temple, and then he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he was misunderstood then, he's being misunderstood now, to say that he's actually going to destroy the building of the temple. He's not talking about that. The apostles later came to understand, John 2 tells us, Stephen evidently came to understand that he's talking about himself. Destroy this temple, kill it on the cross, and three days later I will raise up this temple and construct it again in glory. Jesus is, he himself is, the new and better temple. He himself is the place where humans and God meet. The only place. He Himself is the place where the sufficient sacrifice is offered to cover over the sin of people. He Himself is the place where the priest performs His priestly service. Jesus. And it's not just His sacrifice and His priestly work is not just for a season until next time's sacrifice. It's forever. Come into Jesus. Come into the presence of God. Physically? No. Of course not. Spiritually. Come to Jesus spiritually. Come to the presence of God. Come to the sacrifice that covers sins. Come to the priest who intercedes on your behalf. Come to Jesus. The temple was always just a type. Talked about that in the book of John 2. A type. It's a technical term for a, like a concrete prophecy. 
something that exists in a very tangible form that's pointing ahead to something else. Another type that we might be familiar with are the, are the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices of the lamb, the Passover lamb. That's a real lamb killed that's pointing ahead to the lamb of God who would be slain to cover the sins of the world. Another type is the temple. This place, first a tent traveling around, then an actual building where God is and where people go to meet with him. It's pointing ahead to a temple yet to come where God is and people have to go to meet with him. You neglect this temple, you can't touch God. Come to this temple spiritually, you come into his presence. And any coming into the presence of God, Old Testament in the stories that Stephen's talking about, New Testament in our day, any coming into the presence of God is based upon, is rooted in the sacrifice performed in this temple. The New Testament makes that clear. You might jot down Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 if you want. God's putting off all the sin beforehand to pile it all onto Jesus at his sacrifice. The only reason that anybody can meet with God anywhere is because God reckons their sin paid for in Christ. Past or, or looking back from the future. God must be approached in the proper temple. Stephen, Christianity is not against the temple. It's for what the temple is always about. The temple, Jesus. He must be approached in the proper temple. And he is available everywhere in that temple. As the gospel is preached and believed, the temple is carried. The ability to meet with God is carried everywhere that people go. To Samaria, Greece, Rome, America, everywhere. And then what happens to us when we believe? The New Testament says, amazingly, God comes and lives inside of you. You don't become God, but God comes and takes up residence in you, and we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then what happens when a couple of us get together? Amazingly, we corporately become the temple of God, built with living stones. So wherever I walk, I carry the temple with me. Wherever we meet, we carry the temple. It's amazing. God's not confined to a building in Israel. He's everywhere that we go. He's everywhere that the gospel is proclaimed and believed. It's universal. It's remarkable. If you're a Christian, you carry with you full access to God. You have zero need to make a pilgrimage to anywhere. Not to Jerusalem. Not to Rome. Not to the Constantinople of old. Not to Canterbury Cathedral. Not to Trinity Seminary. Not to 6515 South Lion Lane. Here. You can meet with the God of glory in your garage. Which also means you can lie in a hospital bed and meet with the God of glory. Or be in your office building or on an airplane or in a hostile witnessing environment, or in a foreign mission field, or in the midst of persecution, anywhere. The God of glory is available to meet with you everywhere. Now, there, there may be some places that you find to be more of a sanctuary. 
It might be that you find it easier to meet with God if you take your Bible and go into the mountains and sit next to a stream. If you're in the garage next to the lawnmower, it just isn't, it's not there. But come the time that you need God in the garage, he's available. That you need God in the hospital bed, he's available. Or you need him in the midst of some chaos or some calamity going on in your life, wherever it is, he's available fully to you. In Christ, he's He's, made it, he's moved away all the barriers so that we can have full, complete fellowship with the God of glory, such that even when you're being stoned, you can look up and see the heavens parted and see God in glory. This is a remarkable thing. I think it's the key to why Stephen can preach so courageously to the Sanhedrin. Notice what he actually is saying. He stands to give his defense it's not remotely a defense designed to get him off the hook. He's sealing his own grave. Not remotely designed to, to get himself a, an acquittal. It's designed to present the truth. He's very clear about that. Why? I think part of the key to that is that he's really convinced of what he's saying. That God is available to me right now in fullness. I'm with him. He's with me. Intimacy with God. He sees him. He lives filled with the Spirit, it says in the text. He faces tremendous trial, torturous death with a heart that feeds off of the ever-present God. You get the fellowship of the God of glory everywhere. And flip this around, if you will. That's how God in glory is carried everywhere. How's the glory of the Lord going to cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea? As we move out and spread the gospel and the church grows. And God, little temple here, little temple there, little temple there, little temple there, a temple here. God, temples, tabernacles, everywhere. As the gospel spreads. One thing I ask of the Lord, this will I seek, cried the psalmist. You can picture the psalmist somewhere in the hills of Canaan, thinking of the temple down in Jerusalem. One thing, oh, I just wish. I wish I could dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon his beauty there to seek Him out in His sanctuary and to talk to Him. I can go up there and visit, but then I have to leave. And I can't even go all the way in. Yes, I can in Christ. God has made it so that you can spend all the days of your life in the house of the Lord, in His presence, inquiring of Him, interacting with Him. So don't neglect that. Somewhere inside of you, it beats that you, you want that. If you're a Christian, you want, you've been made for this with God. He's made it possible. Don't walk away from it and satisfy your soul, or attempt to satisfy your soul with television. Or even good things. I mean, I, last week I bashed a couple of things like working hard and going on vacation and playing golf and whatnot. I'm not saying those things are all bad, but we try to fill our hearts with them foolishly because they don't. They don't. You know that. They don't satisfy you. He's made it so that you can be satisfied with Him. Everywhere, fully. Take Him up on it. Please. Take your Bible. 
Pray. Meet with other Christians if that helps you. Take him up on the offer to fellowship with him, to dwell in his presence always. First point, in Christ, God is available to his people everywhere in the world. In the book of Acts, it's particularly used as a foundation for Gentile mission. How do we get beyond just Jews? They don't have to become Jews to become Christians. So they don't have to come to this temple. The temple is diversified. Second observation. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> it's related to the second charge made against Stephen. Stephen speaks against God and Moses by, in the name of Jesus, attacking the law. The teaching of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. He's against it. And change it. And Stephen's response is, very subtly, he's arguing, actually, you guys are against it. But I'm really for it because of what it's about. So here's the second point. Christ is the only legitimate fulfillment of the law of Moses. Christ, Christ alone fulfills the law that God gave to Moses to give to the people. <coughs> he, fills, he fills the law in both what it was pointing to, what it was pointing towards, and what it required from people. And the law has to be fulfilled. We, we Christians, we sometimes have a problem with the law. We set it up maybe, I think, too strongly against grace and we want to throw out the whole of the law and get rid of it. The law has to be fulfilled. The law is good. Stephen's really clear here. It's living oracles. Paul's really clear, Romans 7. The law is good. The law has to be fulfilled. Its requirements must be met in your life. But what exactly is that? What is the central requirement? What is the point of the law? An Orthodox Jew could tell you that there are over 600 different commandments in the law. 600 things over that, actually. It's keeping those things, writing down your list of 600 and marking them off every day, or as an Orthodox Jew will do, tying tassels with knots, one knot for each law, and kind of remind yourself to constantly keep obeying them. Is that what it means to fulfill the law? Or maybe, let's shrink it a little bit, to the Ten Commandments. It's keeping the Ten Commandments, fulfilling the law. Or let's shrink it a little bit more to the Shema, that important passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 6. You know this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Critical passage in the law. Is that, obeying that, keeping the law? Or some combination of those three things? Well, the, many people think so. And Stephen's audience clearly thought so. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. Sadducees and Pharisees, the high priest. Clearly they think, I am a lawkeeper. I mean, the rabble, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those people are sinners. We keep the law of Moses. Stephen, in fact, you're in that category. We keep the law of Moses. To which Stephen says, verse 53, you received it, and you've memorized it, granted, but you don't keep it. You rejected it. No, 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 no. Here's the argument. 
we keep it, you reject it. No, no, no. In fact, you received it, but you don't keep How are they at such completely different understandings of this? Because the Sanhedrin totally misunderstands the message of the writings of Moses. They think that what God requires is do this and this and this and this and don't do this and this and this and this and this. And if you get that done, whatever that is, whether it's the 600 or the 10 or whatever, or change it, let's not just bash the Sanhedrin, let's change it to all the religions of the world. Most people that you know. Human beings think, if I do this and this and this and this and this and don't do this and this and this and this and this, I'm right with God. Or if I don't believe in God, I'm a good person. Some collection of things to do and not do is the human way of thinking about things. And it's pretty easy to read the law and come to that conclusion. And lots of people did. Here's what God wants. Do it, and you'll be good to go. But they totally miss what lies beneath it. What did the Shema say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul. With all your strength. It's about where your heart is, not your behavior. It's about what's going on on the inside, not the outside. The inside produces the outside, but it's about the inside. Moses taught, Stephen chastises them for being circumcised in the flesh, but not in heart. What God's really after. What the law's teaching God actually requires what the, the law's point is twofold. Here's what's required. You can't do that. You can't make yourself like that. You can't circumcise your own heart. You can't turn your affections. You're not in charge of your affections. You can't do it. Look at, look at your own life. Uses with guys sometimes. But, if I were to put a beautiful woman up here and say to a guy, love her, you can't. You can't. You can lust after her. You can acknowledge that you should love her because she's beautiful, she's rich, your mom really likes her. But you can't love her. But the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do you do with that? Here's the requirement. You can't meet it. And the second half of the law is, but there is one who can. Trust him. What's Stephen's point in telling this story like this? You know, there's always been one. This is his point. There's always been one. It was Joseph, rejected by Israel, but God raised him up to be the deliverer of Israel. Moses, rejected by Israel, but God raised him up to be the deliverer of Israel. And there was going to be one greater after him. Israel's re a rejecting people, but God's making a deliverer constantly. The prophets tell about that one. It's always pointing forward to the one who can do what Israel needs done, what the people need done, but can't do themselves. Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these things. The one who does what we can't do, and he's the one that the law is really pointing towards. The, the person, the deliverer. The one that the prophets are talking about also. 
So in both of these ways, that He's the one who fulfills the law righteously, He's the one who does love the Lord His God with all of His heart, all of His soul, all of His strength. He fulfills the requirement. And He's the one who can pass that fulfillment of the requirement onto me. can change me to do what I can't do. In both of those ways, Jesus only, Christ only, is the fulfillment of the law. Now, more could be said about that, but we can suffice to say that that's a lot of theology. There's a lot, of, there's a lot more theology in that, too, how that works out, what to think about with that. But there's a lot of theology there. And I suspect that a number of us are kind of thinking one of two things. Either that's way too theoretical, way too heady and kind of out there, I wish he'd said something practical, or thinking, well, that's good, but you know, I already knew that. I wish he'd said something different, something I could have learned. A number of us are going to fall into one of those two camps. I hope all of us, though, fall into the camp of looking at Stephen and saying, man, I really wish that I was full of grace, full of power, full of the Spirit. I wish that I could live, even in the midst of trials, seeing the glory of God. I wish that I could live a useful servant and a powerful witness both. And I hope when time comes that I can die like that not stoned, but that I can die at peace, fully entrusting myself to God, not vindictive against other people. I really wish I could live like that and die like that. Let me suggest that there's a, there's a connection between the life of Stephen that we all, I'm assuming, want and what Stephen's mind is fixed on, his theology. These things come together. They came together in Stephen's life. They can come together in your life. Without the theology, you won't get this life. With this theology, grasp understood, you will. That's clear. This is made, Stephen's made apparent to us so that we'll see him and understand him and that will connect the argument here that he's making with the life that he lives. He lives fixed on these things. Let me take just one of them and show you how this is. I'm trying to show you how this is. He dies saying, forgive them, Lord. That's a remarkable thing. Completely Christ-like. Jesus said the very same thing on the cross. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. You want to become a forgiver like that? I hope so. Become a better theologian. I don't mean learn more stuff. I mean internalize more things. The more deeply you get in touch with the vast nature of your own sin, the vast, vast nature of your own sin, and the more clearly and vividly you see written in blood across it, paid in full, by this one who fulfilled the law on your behalf and then transfers his righteousness onto you, his transferring his righteousness onto you is how he can say, paid in full. So that you stand before God righteous, not a sinner. God looks at you now and doesn't condemn you, but says, righteous. Why? 
Because of what Stephen's talking about. Because Jesus fulfills the law for you and gives you his righteousness. If that can get into you, if that'll grip you, you'll see, wow, I'm a lot worse than I thought. And wow, Christ is a lot better than I thought. Then you can look at somebody else who's doing you wrong and you can say, you have no idea what you're doing, do you? There's nothing in me that wants to get you. I don't need to get you. All that I need, I already have from Him. I don't need to get you. In fact, getting you wouldn't get me anything. Nothing. It'd get me more trouble, because that'd be sin. It'd get me more relational discord, but it won't get me anything that satisfies, actually. My heart's fully being satisfied over here. And I see that coming from your actions, your sin against me is coming from some total misunderstanding of this great truth. You're not in the temple, are you? You're not covered, are you? Man, that's a sad thing. That kind of attitude towards people comes from theology gripping you. Not theology just up here. Theology gripping you. The two have to go together. You realize, I stand forgiven. I stand before God cleansed. What other problems do I have in life? Really? And you don't stand before God forgiven and cleansed? That's your biggest, huge problem. I would love to help you with that if I can. I'll pray for you. I'll speak to you about these truths. Stephen is very passionate and very clear and very aggressive about defending truth, but not about defending himself. He defends truth for the sake of other people. Not going to defend himself, though. So here's, here's the point. Let me try to wrap these two things together. May you walk through life. Here, here's, here's my hope here. May you walk through life out into a hostile world, out into a foreign world, convinced of this point here, that in Christ, the temple and the law are fulfilled. A lot of you already know that. But do you walk convinced of it? Is that, what, is that what's gripping you? That the temple is fulfilled in Christ. I go with Christ out into the world and I'm still with God. He's still accessible to me. And the, the law is fulfilled. I walk out into the world clean and forgiven. Able to forgive others. With a message to preach to them about how they can be forgiven by God. Walk into a hostile, foreign, pagan world convinced that in Christ the law and the temple are fulfilled. And what can separate you from his love? Let me pray. Lord, you've done something in Christ 
that we constantly stand in danger of taking for granted. You have given us access to you everywhere we go. You've given us a righteousness that covers over all our sin. Would you create in us warmed hearts towards those truths and would you change our lives with them? The center of the gospel. Would you change how we look at other people, how we look at our circumstances? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us confidence? Would you give us an inclination to trust you and to care about other people who don't know you? Give us lives and hearts like Stephen from these truths, Lord, I pray. I thank you for what you've done in Christ. I pray that he'd be honored with our lives. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.